0: It's so good to see you here today, and we'll hopefully see you again here next week, and then hopefully we'll never see you here again. We're going to see you... Some of you don't know how to take that. Um, We'll see you somewhere else, because indeed, next Sunday is Moving Sunday. I was uh, sort of chuckling inside as we were singing the first song of that worship set, Tony, Shout to the North and the South. I was just thinking, you, depending on the outcome of the college football playoff award show at 1130, you may either want to reprise that or do something about weeping and gnashing of teeth for the Alabama fans because we're either going to be shouting or crying. I'm, I'm not sure which. Today we are uh, in the sixth installment of a series that we've been looking at the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. The whole Sermon on the Mount is so incredibly rich. I don't, I don't know of any three chapters of the Bible where we get so much practical truth packed onto three or four pages. as what Jesus gave us in this one sermon. And I don't know of any eight sentences where more truth is poured out than the eight statements that Jesus made when he opened This sermon, And so today we are on the sixth of those in Matthew 5, 8. If you want to open your Bibles there, that's where we'll be. If you will, at least pull out your outline and you'll see the the main scriptures that we'll be looking at today. I'm sure you, like uh, myself, are keenly aware that we live in a world that is obsessed with appearance. Uh, It's getting worse instead of better, isn't it? I mean, we just live in a world where if you're pretty... If you're handsome, if you're hot, if you're skinny, you just have a leg up on everything, don't you? And the, the reverse of that is true. If you're not so skinny, if you're not so pretty, if you're not so smart, you, know, you, you just are at a great disadvantage. We are in a world that values how you look above just about anything else. For most of us, that's not too encouraging, is it? I I look in the mirror and realize I may have a hard time in the world today. The good news is this. Jesus does not give a rip about how you look. He loves you exactly as you are. I'm not saying he's flippant when I say he doesn't give a rip about that. He cares about you. He just doesn't do like the world does and say, well, if you were just prettier, if you were just better, if you were just smarter, if you were just skinnier. Now, a lot of us, we still, the world has trained us and we look at ourselves and say those things. I'd like me better if I were this, if I were more of that. Hopefully, how Jesus feels about us will will begin to, to seep into us and we'll begin to see ourselves the way he sees us because he's concerned about something else. The Lord, as he spoke to Samuel, when he was looking for the right guy to be the king of Israel, he he said in uh, chapter 16, verse 7 of Samuel, that man looks at the outward appearance. but he said, don't judge by that, because the Lord looks at the heart. It's kind of comforting and encouraging for us to know that God is far more concerned about the condition of our heart than he is about our outward appearance. I don't mean that you aren't beautiful people, but it is encouraging to know, you know, as we get older and we don't get prettier in the mirror, that the more beautiful our hearts can become in the sight of God. Jesus reflected this thought with the six beatitude when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, every one of these beatitudes comes with a wonderful promise for starters the opening of, of each line is blessed truly happy favored satisfied are those who and in this case are pure in heart and then he always names a specific blessing that comes with that they get to be the ones who see God so what does that mean that that if you're pure in heart if your heart is right that you get to see God well you don't have to be a theologian to recognize some of the meaning behind that That when he talks about being able to see God, he's meaning that we experience God. If we live with a heart that's pleasing to God, that we get to experience Him in ways that are personal. We get to move beyond religious ritual. Anybody besides me just gets sick to death of of just religious ritual. Like we're church, it's just a bunch of rituals. And you could, I mean, how many times have you been to church that you feel like I could have? I could have dialed this in at about 8 o'clock this morning. I could have already written out what's going to happen because it's such a predictable ritual. And Jesus said, you get to move beyond ritual. You get to personally encounter God where you hear his voice. You don't just hear the preacher's voice. And the worship leader's voice, you get to personally see, hear, and know the voice of God, the presence of God, the peace that comes with His presence. And you get to experience the power of God and the favor and forgiveness of God. Who doesn't want that? Sign me up. And Jesus is saying... God doesn't want to be somehow exclusive and say, well, you know, I'm really picky who I hang with. So, you know, I'm going to be very selective. No, he says, I want you to experience that. And it is the condition of your heart. It's not your background. It's not your theological education. It's not how much you've advanced yourself in Sunday school. It is your heart's condition that will determine the extent to which you experience God in real, knowable, personal ways. So that's what we're going to talk about today. What it means to be pure in heart. Because I want us all to qualify for for the blessing that Jesus is talking about. Don't you? Don't you want, at a personal level, but at the level of this church, for us to be a people who, we don't just do ritual, but we live in the presence of God. When we come together, we just expect an outpouring of God on us because we're just people who live in His presence. Well, how do we experience that? Jesus said, You've got to be pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, on the face of it, we might be intimidated and think, well, pure in heart, that sounds like perfection, doesn't it? Just completely pure, without blemish is what we might think of. The good news is that the phrase that Jesus is using there doesn't suggest sinlessness. Thank goodness for that. I mean, if that's what he were saying, we might as well just close up shop today and say, well, we ain't going to qualify for this. He's not saying sinless perfection. He is talking about being blameless in the sense of the the modern term that we would use is just living life with a heart of integrity. And that's the word that we're really going to focus in on today. Having a heart that is determined to live and operate with integrity, with a purity of heart. So what we're going to focus on today is getting our hearts pointed in the right direction. Now as we begin to think about that, I just want to share a truth with you that's not in your outline, but it may be the most significant thing that you consider today, and it is just this. I want you to really chew on this thought. But it's important to understand, God is far more interested with the direction of your heart than he is with the sins that you've committed. He's more concerned with the direction of your heart than he is with anything that you've done in the past week. Some of us need to think about that for a little bit to figure out whether we believe it or not. In fact, I'll go ahead and say there are a lot of us who just don't believe it. We think that God is, is a list maker and, and a rule maker. And that he's always busy keeping records of what all we've done wrong. And that he's focused in on you know, whatever John's done wrong or whatever Tony's messed up this week. And making sure that they pay the price for that. Somehow that's just been drilled into some of us to, to think that's what God's all about. And the truth of the matter is, God cares more about our heart than he does about anything else. And he's so focused today on just the direction of your heart. And if we could ever get that, it'd be so liberating. I mean, when you think about the great men and women in Scripture that God used in such a big way who were described as people of integrity, people like Noah, Abraham, David, Peter, and and certainly as we remember their lives and their examples, we would say, oh yes, great men of integrity, great leaders, and yet stop and think about their lives. Abraham. He could lie with the best of them. And the, the lies that he did... Concerning his wife, I, I mean, I love Abraham. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. But I, I hope we have time to sit down and, and him unpack the whole thing about what happened the two times that you pissed your wife off as your sister instead of your wife, so the king could do what he wanted to with her and you wouldn't get hurt. Wow. And she still claimed you. I mean, that's that's pretty wild. Peter, wow. I mean, every time he opened his mouth, he got in trouble. And at the most critical moment, he's not only denying that he knows Jesus, he's cussing while he does it. I mean, literally, the gospel writers have to edit what Peter said to get it in the scriptures. But David, I mean, certainly, he's just got to be the top of the list. You can't read the Old Testament without coming to the conclusion that God was as crazy about David as he was any human he had ever created. He, is, he was just nuts in love with just David's heart. David. And I love David. I'm not trying to trash the guy, but just stop and think about his life. He not only committed adultery, he murdered the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with, who happened to be one of his elite personal guard of 30 bravest warriors, so this was a personal friend that he has murdered. I mean, David pulled stuff right and left. He'd lie and pretend like he was insane just to get out of trouble. I mean, David did some pretty wild stuff. But in all of that, he had a heart that longed to please the Lord more than life itself. And over and over, you can just hear the heart of God as he's saying, this is the man that I pick. Of all the people on earth that I could pick to lead my people, that would be who I want, this is the one because he's a man after my own heart. We get hung up on that because we're like, but don't you remember what he did? And God says, you know what? I'm far less concerned with what he did than I am with the condition of his heart today and the direction of his heart and feet today. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Some of us walked in the door, not really necessarily thinking about it consciously, but we are dragging some baggage behind us. That stuff that we've done that we're just so convinced that it's going to haunt us and follow us for the rest of our days, and one day God's going to take us to the woodshed over that. And the Spirit of God is trying to whisper in our our hearts this morning, saying, I am so so more concerned about the condition and direction of your heart than with what you've done. That's good news. So, what is this thing of integrity, and how do we get it? Well, quickly, in understanding what we're talking about, when we talk about a heart of integrity, there are three terms or phrases that will help us to, to get a handle on this. You'll see these in your outline. The first one is the word wholeness. A lot of people, I would dare say most people, I think, tend to treat their lives as if it were a pie, That could be cut up into slices and segmented out. And integrity is the exact opposite of that. There are some other words that we use today that come from the same root word as integrity. Like, do you remember in math class the term integer? Do you remember what an integer is? It just means a whole number. Zero, one, two, three, four. Those are integers. Nothing with a fraction. Because that root word is about wholeness. It's about you being a whole person, not a bunch of fractions that you don't get to segment your life. What is uh, another word uh, that we get from that same root is integration. Everything being integrated together. What is the opposite of integration? Segregation. We all know that, don't we? What is segregation? Dividing things out. These people can't be with these people, can't be with these people. And by the way, I think we are segregated. Because these people never sit here, and these people never sit here, and these people always sit here. Everybody's got their place. I don't guess it matters where you go to church. you got your place. Don't sit in my seat. (laughs) Yeah, We're obviously not Baptists because we haven't filled the back row, but we have found our assigned seating. That is segregation. Integration says we don't get to split things out. We are one whole. Do you know what a segregated life looks like? It's a person who has their work life and their work persona. This is how I am when I'm at work and with people that I work with. But this is how I am when I'm out with just my buddies on Friday night and Saturday night. And here's how I am when I'm with my family. Boy, my family gets a very different version of me. And then this is how I am on Sunday morning with my church family. You know how that is and and you can just go right on down the line, you know. There's my work life, there's my there's my life on the golf course, there's my life with my family, there's my sex life, there's my secret life. There's my all of these different slices of life. Integrity means you don't get to slice your life up. You have to be the same person. You choose to be the same person wherever you go. You don't have to worry about your worlds colliding because All the different circles of people around you experience the same person who acts the same way and talks the same way, no matter who you're around. Are you with me? Integrity is about integration. It's about wholeness. Secondly, it's about authenticity, where you keep it real, not about being fake or phony. You just are who you appear to be, whether you're with your kids or your grandkids or with your church family or with the Queen of England. It doesn't matter. You're just the same person. And then the final phrase we'll use to define integrity is just unmixed motives. Being sincere and straightforward, doing the right thing for the right reasons, but not trying to impress other people. This is not the person who takes on the Our Heavenly Father voice every time they pray in public to be heard and You know, to sound that way. It's just being the real deal. Proverbs 3 says, The Lord hates people with twisted hearts, but delights in those who have integrity. You know what a twisted heart looks like. It has to twist itself in a lot of different directions for different groups of people. And Solomon's pretty straightforward about it. God hates those people. I thought God had to love everybody. Hello. Hello. Go back and read the Gospels and how Jesus interacted with people. Jesus loves all kinds of people. Except, apparently, based on his interactions on earth, religious hypocrites. People with twisted hearts who pretended to be one way here and behaved another way at other times. Well, I want us to be the kind of people that God delights in. Don't you? I want to be the kind of people that God says, I love their heart. I want to support them. So... We're going to focus in on how to be that kind of person. So with a bit of time that we've got left, I want to do two things. I want to just briefly share with you three specific blessings that, and benefits that come from living a life of integrity. And then we're going to take a little bit of time to answer the question of, okay, how do I pursue a life of integrity? First of all, just three blessings that are brought on by integrity. And the first one is personal confidence. Proverbs 10.9 says, people with integrity walk safely. But those who follow crooked paths will be exposed. Somebody made this point and it it really does fit. If you've ever, I know we don't experience this a lot down here, but if you've ever traveled to where there's snow and ice and you've tried to walk when, when it's frozen over solid and then it's melted just enough that on top of the ice there's just enough water to make it completely treacherous. Do you remember what that feels like? You can't really relax at any moment, can you? Because all of your energy and attention is just focused on not falling on your behind. All your energy is focused on just not losing your footing. To live without integrity is like trying to walk on wet ice. All your your attention and energy is just trying to not slip up and trip up. Because you're always having to think about... Who am I with and what lie have I told and well, what have I said to this person? I recently ran across a guy lately, who, uh, a businessman who had been saved for a while. And somebody asked the question, what changed the most when you came to Christ? And he said, uh, the biggest change in me was how I answered the phone. I was like, well, that's a weird thing to change. What changed about how you answer the phone? And he said, before I got saved, before I would ever answer the phone, I would have to look and see who it was. So that I could get clear in my head what lie I was going to have to tell and what I had already told. So that I would know what I was supposed to say to this person. And so it's always just mental gymnastics to figure out, wait a minute, let's see, who is this? Now what have I already told them? You don't have to do any of that when you walk with integrity. Because you don't have to remember what you've said. You just tell the truth. You just be real and straight up and tell the truth. And you don't have to remember everything you've said in the past. It gives you a firm footing. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the honest keeps them on track. It's amazing how liberating that is. When you walk with integrity and honesty, how much that will help to take away and alleviate fear. Some people are just crippled by fear of, of the future and fear of making decisions. And walking in integrity will help to alleviate a lot of that. Because you just know that the favor of God goes with you. You won't always get it right, but when you know that that you've dealt honestly and truthfully, and you've, you've done the things that we're going to talk about today, that even when you slip up and you mess up, you know the grace of God's going to cover you. And so you can just step forward boldly, because God's got you covered when you walk in integrity. It gives you personal confidence. The second thing that it does is it allows you to leave a lasting legacy. Your greatest legacy in life absolutely will be your integrity or the lack thereof. Now, some of us spend a lot of time worrying and fretting about what we're going to leave to our kids. I'm always kind of amazed at the great lengths that parents and grandparents will go to to make sure that they're leaving a lot of material stuff and wealth to the generation that's coming behind them. And I guess the reason that I marvel at that is because one thing that never changes, no matter what time period you look at or what generation that you're talking about is, inherited wealth will almost universally corrupt a generation. Inherited wealth corrupts far more than it blesses. When you work for what you have, you are far more likely to have an appreciation and an ethic and and just be be a person of character. And when you've just had it given to you through inheritance, you are far more likely to be lacking in character. And I'm just chasing a rabbit. I'm just going to stop there. Just check that out. Watch and see. Yeah, thank you, Joel. See if that isn't borne out over time. But here's the thing that you can pass on to your kids, and you never have to worry about it corrupting them. And that is a legacy of integrity. The scriptures remind us of this in uh, Proverbs 27, where it says, The godly walk with integrity, and blessed are their children who follow them. Kids who can look back and say, Man, it is the example of my parents, it is the lifestyle of my grandmother, of my grandfather. That for me became the embodiment of how Jesus would do things. And so when I was faced with a tough situation and wondering what should I do? What's the right thing to do? I just pictured what would my dad do? What would my grandmother do? What, what would this person who has meant so much to me and who's lived a life of integrity, what would they do? That's leaving a legacy of integrity. And it shapes the next generations behind us. Now I get it. There are plenty of us in the room, plenty who are watching and listening online, who would say, But that's the problem. If I look very hard at my life, I haven't left a legacy of integrity. There have been some major failures, some that I couldn't hide. For some, failures that have greatly damaged relationships with kids or grandkids. And instead of being encouraged by what we're talking about today, at this moment, you may be feeling that much worse about yourself because you feel like, yeah, once again, I just don't measure up. And I just want to say to you, one of the most powerful legacies that you could leave behind, and that you still have an opportunity to leave behind, is a legacy of a changed life. That stands out like a, a bright light on a dark night, a life that has been transformed that was lived one way, where clearly there were failures, there were bad choices. And then there was a change. I'm reminded of my own grandfather, my dad's dad. We knew him as Papa Price. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. It's been interesting now as a middle-aged adult to hear stories that I never heard as a kid. For whatever reason, I I never heard... About the things that went on before I was ever born. But in more recent years, my dad has unpacked stuff that I never knew about. Things about his family growing up. And about my grandfather, my Papa Price. And part of what I was just shocked to discover, because it was so different from the man that I knew. Is when he was a younger adult, he liked to party. And he liked whiskey. And he could put it away. And he didn't do it in moderation. He would get drunk. So hard for me to picture. But it's not hard for my dad to picture because he witnessed it for years. He wasn't a believer and he just behaved like a lost man behaves. He liked to party and he liked to. I mean, he had a family. He had his family life, but he also had his party friends and his party life. And he would go out and he would drink too much and come home and be drunk. And thankfully, God put. My grandfather and grandmother—they were farmers, small-time farmers—and God put in His life a farmer who lived, you know, within a mile or so of them on the next farm, and who was a believer and who was burdened for him. And he—he he worked his way through the swamp that I hunted in countless times when I was growing up. I can appreciate what a difficult time it was for him to to wade through that swamp and and come sit on a log with my grandfather and to tell him about Jesus. He came for one reason only and that was to tell my grandfather about the difference that Jesus had made in his life. And it made a tremendous impression on my grandfather. He said, the fact that that man was willing to wade through that swamp just to come tell me about Jesus made me realize this must be something important that I need to consider. He took that to heart and he put his trust in Jesus. Everything didn't just change overnight. There was a night he went out and partied again and he had too much whiskey and Dad realized that the next morning when he went out behind the house and walked around behind the, um, the chicken house and saw my grandfather back there just being sick as a dog, throwing up on the ground, sick and hungover from the night before, and my Papa Price looked up and saw my dad looking at him and just was felt in an overwhelming shame that his son would see him that way, and Dad said, he looked at me and he said, I'll make you this promise You will never see me like this again. And Dad said, so far as I know, that's the last time he ever drank. Now, the grandfather that I knew before I ever knew any of that was so 180 degrees opposite of that that it's hard to connect those two people. In fact, one of the the stories, the only story about alcohol I ever heard about my grandfather whenever I was a a teenager was that uh, he was walking. He lived in Clayton, Alabama, and he was uh, walking down the street there in clayton and uh passing by near where the abc store was and a lady that he knew an old woman who apparently couldn't get around very well was sitting in her car and said mr price would you come over here he went to the car and she said i need a bottle of such and such a liquor i don't know if it was for cooking or for drinking purposes but she needed a a bottle of liquor and would be difficult for her to get out and go in the liquor store could you go in and get it for me He felt a bit of a dilemma, but he said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And he went in and got it and came out. As he's carrying her bottle out to give her in her car so she wouldn't have to get out, a woman stopped him on the sidewalk and said, Mr. Price, you are the last man in Clayton I would have ever dreamed that I would see coming out of the ABC store with liquor. Now, I remember hearing that story and just feeling crushed for him thinking, well, please tell me that you, that you went back and you set the record straight and that you, you told her that it wasn't for you, it was for somebody else. But he, he didn't. He just went and gave it to the person that it belonged to and went on his way. And the thing that I missed when I first heard that story was the beauty of the whole picture. That he didn't really have to go back and explain himself and he didn't need to because there had been such a drastic change in his life that had lasted for so long that when somebody who truly knew him in that community, where he had lived for decades and decades, bumped into him, that they could say of him, you are the last person in this town that I would ever imagine seeing coming out of there. And I just think, what a beautiful picture of change. Now, I'm not up here to try and lecture about alcohol. I'm just telling you, a legacy of change is a powerful gift. I had the privilege of doing my Uh, grandfather's funeral several years ago. I've done quite a few funerals over the years. Sometimes you do a funeral and you're just hoping that that person's with Jesus and you don't know. When I did his funeral, I didn't have to do a I hope he's with Jesus. Only God knows. We know where he is. You know how we know? Because we witnessed a changed life. That was his legacy. If you're not in a place where your testimony is one that you can feel good about don't beat yourself over, up over it. Just determine that you're going to let, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let God give you a new track record and a legacy of change. A third benefit is this, and that is maybe the best one of all because it's the permanent one. And that is rewards in eternity. Blessings that last forever. Jesus in Matthew 25 He told a a story before he goes into the whole thing about the sheep and the goats at the final judgment. He tells a story to illustrate what it's going to be like whenever God judges us and when he, he hands out reward and punishment at the final judgment. And he says in verse 21 of Matthew 25, the master, the one representing God here, answered, you did well to a servant. You did well. You're a good and loyal servant. And because you were loyal with small things, everybody say small things. Because you were loyal with small things, I will let you take care. I will let you care for much greater things. Come and share my joy with me. You ought to circle those two words, small things. I think we believe that life turns on the big choices and the big decisions that everybody witnesses, but Jesus reminds us that what God's paying attention to is the small things. That God rewards the small things. Have you ever noticed it's not so hard to do the right thing usually on the big things that the whole world's going to know what you did? The tricky ones are the small ones. It's the compromises that you could make and nobody's going to know. It's the corners that you could cut and only you and God are going to know. And Jesus said, That's a big determining factor in what you're going to receive in reward at the final judgment and how much responsibility you're going to have for all of eternity because of what you chose to do in the small things. The times when you could have taken part in that great little gossip session, but you just shut your mouth and walked away. Nobody else noticed, but God took notice. It was a small thing. The time when you could have just passed that person by, but you followed the prompting in your heart to go back and give them some help. Nobody else knew about it. You thought nobody noticed, but that small thing, God noticed. The time when you cared enough to just pause and offer a simple prayer of faith. Nobody else realized you were praying in faith for that person that you were holding on for them, but God noticed. You see, I I think a lot of us have a a messed up perspective about what's going to happen at the final judgment. I think a lot of believers live in fear of the final day of judgment. We've been told so many times goofy stuff about the final judgment. I'll never forget in student ministry years ago, one of the ladies, she was, she was eager and her intentions were good. She came up to me, we were going to have our youth gathering on a Sunday night and she said, "God's just put something on my heart and, and I just feel like I'm supposed to share it and do the teaching with the kids tonight. Would you let me share with them tonight? I'm like, if God's given you a word. That's fine. You can do that. So I'm actually in the next room. There were refreshments as a part of that. I stepped in to get my plate of food and I'm hearing her as she's teaching and her teaching begins basically like this. Now, students, I want you to understand That one day we're all going to be before the throne of God at the final judgment. And what God's going to do is He's going to pick us out one at a time. And there's going to be a giant screen. And He's going to replay for everyone to see, one at a time, all of the sins, failures, and bad choices of our life. And, yeah, I mean, I'm like about to drop my plate on the floor, my mouth hanging open. And I'm like, that's not heaven, that's hell. (laughs) She's describing what every Christian's going to face. And I'm thinking, what church have you been going to? That's not what's going to happen at the final judgment. If it is, the Bible isn't true. God who remembers our sins no more, who removes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That's not what's happening at the final judgment. You know, I, I'll tell you what I kind of picture as a part of the equation, just to sort of oversimplify it, The Scripture speaks, like in Revelation, of of the books being opened, as we're called to account. I picture it as kind of being like a ledger, with two sides to it. And on the one side, there's a list of every sin and every, every wrong thing that I've ever done. But, you know, the special thing about that side of the page is, it's sort of like, you know, when you go to the doctor and the very first thing that you do is you sign in, and as soon as they enter your name in the computer, what happens next? They bring out the big Sharpie marker. And HIPAA means, the HIPAA rules means they can't leave your name exposed. They've got to immediately cover that up. You know what I'm talking about, the list? It's, it's a long list, and everywhere above your name is just a bunch of blacked out stuff that you can't tell what was ever there. And as soon as you write your name down, it's blacked out too. On the one side of the ledger is everything you've ever done wrong. And you can't see a bit of it. And it hasn't been covered up with a sharpie. It's been covered with the blood of Jesus. On the, on the, what did they do to screw it up and separate them from God? A long list. It's covered in red, but it comes out as white as snow. Because the blood of Jesus has covered that. But there's another side to the ledger. And you know what fills those pages? It's the things that you've done that God said, I kept track of every one of them to make sure that you get a reward for all of eternity for what you did. When you gave what you didn't have to give, when you prayed in faith, when you reached out, when you went and sat with that person instead of doing what was comfortable and you reached out with to that person who looked so all alone and who was different from you. And you just you went beyond yourself and you just did that little thing and you thought nobody noticed heaven noticed. And heaven wrote it down. And God in heaven said, I'll make sure that you get rewarded for that. That's going to change what eternity is going to look like for you. A life of integrity changes what you're going to experience for all of eternity. We need to get a new theology of heaven, don't we? I'm telling you, if there's one thing that we could change that would probably radically affect how we live our lives, it would be to get a healthy perspective of heaven because... I feel like everybody I ever talked to has just pretty much got the attitude, I just want to make sure I get in. I've heard people say it over and over. I'll take the worst seat in heaven as long as I get there. I won't! I don't want the back seat on the bus. I want to be next to Jesus. I want to, I want to be in a place, not for my benefit, but because I want to live a life that's pleasing to God and that would honor Him, for Him to be able to say, I can assign you anywhere I need to because I've seen that you're faithful in the little things and so I can put you into bigger positions of responsibility. Jesus taught this principle again and again. Why would He teach it? If he didn't expect us to pursue life on earth that would lead to that for all of eternity. I look forward to heaven, whatever I'm doing, but I'd just as soon not be the garbage collector. I want to be able to do whatever he's got assigned for me to do. And I don't want to miss out on it because I was not faithful in the small things. I want to live a life of integrity that leads to eternal reward. So how do we do that? Well, David wrestled with this same idea in the 15th Psalm. The whole psalm is really an earlier version of what Jesus says in the sixth beatitude. Jesus, uh, uh, excuse me, David, began by asking two questions that are really one and the same. Lord, who may stay in your tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Now, what's the blessing that Jesus has said for the pure in heart? They get to what? They get to see God. They get to experience God in a personal way. So you see, David's asking the same question. God, who gets to hang out with you? Who gets to really be close with you, be in the tent with you, live on your mountain with you? Who is it? The one who walks with integrity. It's all about the heart. Well, what's integrity? Well, he does what's righteous. Now he's going to unpack what a life of integrity looks like. He speaks the truth within his heart. There's verbal integrity. The one who does not slander with his tongue or do evil to a friend. That's relational integrity. Or bring disgrace to his neighbor. The one who honors those who fear the Lord. The one who makes a promise and does not break it. That's verbal integrity. Even though he's hurt by it. The one who does not collect interest on a loan or take a bribe against an innocent person. That is financial integrity. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. That's firm footing for those with integrity. Alright, so now, let's take just a little bit of time and unpack. How then do I pursue a life of integrity? Here's where I am, here's where I need to be going. How do I begin to pursue a life of integrity? And what's the measure of a life of integrity? What I'm going to share certainly isn't exhaustive or all-inclusive, but this is a good start toward A life of integrity. Five specific ways that the scriptures call us to live with integrity. And the first one is this. By keeping your promises. People of integrity keep their word. Verbal integrity. If you say it, it's the truth. And if you said it, you're going to do it. Proverbs 25.14 says, People who promise to give gifts but never give them are like clouds and wind that bring no rain. Isn't that the truth? You know what he's talking about there. Clouds and wind that bring no rain. Think about when we've been through a season of drought. Hot summertime. It's been weeks and weeks and weeks since the last rain. And you've watered to your water bills just off the charts. And you, your garden's dying. And everything's dying. And finally, you see the clouds coming. And the forecast looks hopeful. And, and the wind brings in some dark clouds. And you're like, yes. Finally, we're going to get it today. And you wait, and you watch, and the wind keeps blowing until it blows those clouds away without a drop of rain ever falling. People who promise something and don't do what they've promised are like clouds without rain. It's empty promises, and they're useless. A cloud without rain to a farmer facing a drought is useless. It's a tease. So, what have you said that you'll do that you haven't done? What have you said that you'll do that you need to follow through on? You know, there's not much that will embitter your spouse, your kids, your boyfriend or girlfriend more than saying you'll do something and then not following through. David went on to say in the 15th Psalm that the person of integrity keeps their word even when it hurts. We figured out a an out clause on that, haven't we? Well, I changed my mind. I meant it when I said it. But now I didn't realize, see, what I, what I know now. And circumstances are different now. So I've changed my mind and now I won't be able to do that. No. He said a person of integrity that keep their oath even when it hurts. I'm reminded of a story that... One of my favorite pastors is Rick Warren at Saddleback Saddleback Church in California. I just think he's the real deal, um, an example worth following. And Pastor Rick shared, I don't know, two or three years ago in one of his sermons, he was talking about his son who just, I guess probably three years ago, committed suicide. So he was in his 20s. He had been troubled with uh, depression and and, uh, some emotional and mental disorders and finally took his own life, tragically, about three years ago. But he shared a story about his son, Matthew. From probably ten or twelve years earlier, and he said even at that time in his life, Matthew already just had debilitating fears, just all, major anxiety disorder, and he was in sixth grade. And uh, Rick said that it was you know he had come to the age that he could finally go away to church camp, to sixth grade church camp, and he really wanted him to go. Thought it would be important and helpful in his life, and so he sat in to talk with him. About it, you know, Matthew. Would think this would be really good for you. Would love to see you do this, Dad. I can't do that. That's just that's too scary. You know, I can't handle going away like that. And he said in the course of that exchange that he told his son, "Look, if it'll help make that easier for you, I'll go with you to camp. I'll just volunteer and I'll be one of the camp counselors. And you know, if you get afraid or you have a problem, you'll know I'm there. You just come to me. So I'll be there if you need me." And so he thought about it, and he just finally came back and said, "Dad, I, I just can't do it. That's still too scary. Even with you there, that's just too hard. I, I'm not going to camp." So Rick said, "I just, you know, I left it at that. What am I going to make him go?" And, so about that time, this was back when Promise Keepers was such a major movement, and he said the Promise Keepers contacted him, and the same week that camp was going to be taking place, um, they were going to be having one of their major regional events with about 100,000 men gathered at a huge stadium, and they asked if he'd be one of the featured speakers for that. And so they were in the process of, of kind of ironing that out, seeing if it was going to work out for him to come, and so he's thinking, well, I'll probably do that. It'll be a neat thing to go and be a speaker at. And as you can imagine, as they get in the middle of figuring all that out, his son comes back and says, Dad, you know, I've been thinking about it. I think if you'll go with me to camp, I think I'll go. Well, now he has an invitation to speak to 100,000 men in Atlanta for Promise Keepers rally. Or he can go be a camp counselor for sixth grade camp. And he said, you know, when he stopped to think about it, it was a no-brainer. He called the folks at Promise Keepers and said, I'm sorry, I have a prior commitment and I'm not going to be able to to come to that event. He said, there was no pleasure in being a 6th grade camp counselor. That did not do it for him. But he said, there's never been a day in my life that I have regretted keeping my word to my son. Passing on the 100,000 so that I could be true to my word to the one. That is keeping your oath even when it hurts. People of Integrity... Speak the truth. And what they say they'll do, they'll do. Second thing. Second way that we pursue a life of integrity. Is by paying your bills. Now, this may not seem like a big deal. But it's a big deal to God. And it needs to be a big deal to us. It's called financial integrity. How we handle our money is a big test of our integrity. So, I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. And I know. (laughs) I was talking to our leadership Huddled as we were praying this morning, I'll always share some word about what I'm going to be preaching. And I I said, as we talk about integrity, there are going to be plenty of reasons for people to get mad. By the time we're done today, this would top the list as we get into the heart of what it means to, to live with financial integrity. But bear with me. See if this doesn't bear out with the Scriptures. Do you spend more than you make? When you really cut down to it, do you... On a regular basis, do you spend more money than you make? Because if you do, at some point you have to look in the mirror and say, that is a lack of financial integrity. Spending more than you have. Because what that will result in is an inability ultimately to pay somebody what we owe them. Psalm 37.21 says, The wicked borrow money and they never pay it back. We, we live in a culture where it has become socially acceptable to just try and get debts forgiven, and to not worry about it. You know, to, I'm, I'm going to live my life a particular way, and if I accumulate too much debt, well, I'll see if I can hire some agency or some lawyer or somebody to negotiate my way out of this. And the simple truth is, I, I know that there can be unusual circumstances, but the truth is, we need to live within our means, we need to pay for our obligations, and we need to find ways to make that work. Secondly, and here's where it gets really juicy, to live with financial integrity means that we consistently and fully pay our taxes. I can't think of many things that Christians write themselves a pass on more than failing to pay our taxes in full. Paul, in writing to the Christians in Rome, of all the places in the first century that you could choose to be a Christian, Rome is not where I'd want to be. Because the Roman government was so incredibly oppressive in the first and second and part of the third century. Not a government that you'd want to fund. That you'd feel enthusiastic to say, "Woohoo! I'm glad that I get to give part of what I make to Caesar. As he's having Christians murdered and hung up on poles and set on fire. And Paul says to those believers, The authorities are working, he's talking about the governmental authorities, are working for God. Pay what you owe them. Pay your personal and property taxes. Now, I know people's first argument so many times is, but I don't like how the government's spending money. Neither do I. It has no bearing on the conversation. It has no bearing whatsoever. Well, the government spends more money than they take in. Yes, they do. It's called deficit spending, and it's wrong, and they'll answer to God for it. It's a lack of integrity that they do that. But we don't answer for that. They do. What we answer for is, do we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's? And people will argue, well, but they do some things with my money that I don't support. It's not ours to figure that out, because we don't get to control what they do with that beyond at the ballot box. So take part in the process, and we pay our taxes. And to fail to do that is to fail to follow what the Word teaches. And anything that we would say about, well, I don't appreciate what congress is doing or how irresponsible that they are do you think for a minute congress has done anything that comes close to what the roman government was doing and paul says to the roman christians they work for god so when you submit to them and you support them you're submitting yourself to god that's hard truth isn't it that's hard truth for all of us So when we let that trickle down to what does financial integrity look like, here's a big part of what financial integrity looks like. Getting paid in cash does not mean that I am now exempt from paying taxes on it. Do you all realize how widespread this is? Oh, I don't have to pay taxes on this. They paid me in cash. Why don't you run that by the IRS? We, we've got a former Department of Revenue employee here. How, how's that going to play out to, uh, to, to run that by the IRS or the Alabama Department of Revenue? That's not well received, is it? We, we pay our full taxes. We pay on everything that we receive. I knew that I wasn't going to get any amens. That's okay. <laughs> Moving right along. You know, we can actually practice the same kind of mindset, though, when it comes to Church. And give him back to God. I, I hope none of us practice this. But I, I've certainly been around plenty of people in my life. Who would sort of play the same game with church that they do with the government. And you know well I'm going to put something in the basket. But I mean I'm not going to give a whole tithe. Or I want to before I put anything in there. I want to know how all that money is going to be used. And you know people who go down that road are the ones who. Well I want to designate what mine's going to go for. I don't want any of my gift to the church to go for this. I want it all to go for that. I want it all to be in missions or whatever. At the end of the day. Everything belongs to God. Everything that comes through my hands belongs to God. But there's a fraction of that. And it's called the tithe. It is the first tenth. That is the divine portion. That I don't even get any say in what goes on with that. The scripture is very clear. If I mess with that ten percent, I'm robbing God. And it puts me in a place of cursing rather than blessing. And I don't want to live there. I always want to be blessable. And I don't get to play the game of going, Well, I wonder how the government's using that money. I wonder how the church is spending that money. <laughs> nope. At the end of the day, if this is what the government's do, I'm going to give to the government. And right ahead of giving to the government, I'm going to give to my church. I'm going to give the full tithe. And beyond that, it's up to me what I give as a free will offering. And the church and the government will answer to God for how they use that. But I don't have to sit here and nitpick about that. I just be faithful to God. And God blesses integrity. God blesses financial integrity. And when you live with financial integrity... That frequently leads to financial blessing. Now, I'm not going to sit here and give you some some blown-up lie of what you are assured of getting when you do that, but just know that blessing follows obedience. Are you with me? All right. Thanks for not running away after that. Third way to pursue integrity is by refusing to gossip. That is relational integrity. If I talk sweetly about you to your face and make you feel like the best thing since sliced bread. And then an hour later when you're not around, or five minutes later when you walk away and somebody comes up that doesn't like you and suddenly I just ride the train with them too. Oh, you know, that does bother me about them too. I can't believe and I mean, they act like they don't have anything, but you see what they drive? Mhm. I I don't think that person's the real deal. I bet they don't this or I bet they are that and suddenly, we're tearing apart the same person that we just acted like we're best friends with. It's gossip and slander, and the scripture's really clear on this. Those things get lumped with the most heinous sins that you could ever imagine. They're just they're all lumped right in there together. And gossip is a it's a tricky thing. For one thing, I don't know of, of many sins that seem so harmless. But that are so enjoyable and destructive all at the same time. Proverbs says that the words of a gossip are like a choice morsel and they go down to a man's inmost being. They're just like my favorite appetizer right before dinner. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Just gobble it up. And it is that way, isn't it? I know, y'all are far more spiritual than I am. You've never enjoyed gossip. Isn't it just sickening? I mean, there's nothing that reflects the wickedness of our own hearts more than just realizing how much we enjoy a good gossip session. Now, I know we never gossip. We just share. We share concerns and we share prayer needs that turn into gossip. And it just feels so good while you're doing it. But it goes down to a man's inmost being. And it poisons us. And the tricky thing about gossip is, you can be just as guilty of gossiping without ever opening your mouth. Because to be on the receiving end of gossip is just as guilty as being on the giving end of gossip. It's just like the person who steals from your house is no more guilty than the person who receives the stolen goods. They both go to prison. Receiving stolen goods is just like stealing goods. Listening to gossip and going mm, hmm mm, is just as wrong as being the the one doing the gossiping. A life of integrity refuses to take part in gossip. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, "A gadabout gossip." There's a fifty cent word for you. I had to look that one up. I've not heard "gadabout" lately. For for those of you in the same boat with me, I'll just so you don't have to go look it up. It, it just, a gadabout is somebody who just travels about just looking for pleasure and whatever they would enjoy. So this is just somebody who's just, they're just always open to whoever wants to talk about whomever. You know, I just enjoy that. It just, a gadabout gossip can't be trusted with a secret, but somewhat of integrity won't violate a confidence. We have all been on the receiving end of, of that, haven't we? And what... Is such a gift for us is when we can be around a person or a small group of people that you know you can trust them with your deepest secrets, your, your deepest pains, your greatest struggles, because you know it's not going to go anywhere past them. And I'm just guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that a lot of you are in the same boat with me. That there's been one or more times in your life that you have believed that you had that in a friend or in a small circle, a small group or whatever, and you let down your guard and you shared some personal stuff and it came right back around full circle and bit you in the keister because they didn't keep a confidence. Anybody ever done that before? Oh, I have. I mean, I've sat with people I knew I could trust. In years past, I've, I've sat in a church leadership circle with the most senior leaders of the church in a completely confidential meeting and shared the deepest struggles and burdens on my heart. And it was literally not 24 hours before somebody outside of that circle came back to talk to me about what had come out in that meeting in a completely confidential meeting. And, you know, at that point, you just can't hardly help but shut down and know I can't trust here. The one that that just to this day, it's still hard to swallow. I was in a a very small, very tight-knit pastor's prayer group for about 10 years here on the eastern shore. And usually there were just six or eight of us together for an hour and a half each Tuesday morning to share and pray together. Just such a rich time. Came to really trust those guys. And several, several years into it, one morning... Um, I opened up I don't even remember what it was specifically that I had shared it wasn't anything scandalous but it was something that was very personal that was not to be repeated something that I was that was on my heart that I was burdened about and concerned about that was very personal didn't want to share beyond that just shared it with them for them to to pray with me and in the course of about the next week a lady in the church came up to me and wanted to talk to me about that that very personal thing that I had shared In the pastor's prayer group. And I'm thinking, what in the world? I haven't talked to anybody else on earth about this. And a woman in the church is coming because she's concerned because she's heard this. And she just goes ahead and spills the beans. She said, oh, pastor so-and-so came and told me this. And I'm thinking, why in the world? And then it dawns on me. Three families in our church had come at the same time. And they had all been in the same church together. They had been in his church. And had left his church to attend our church. And apparently that hurt his feelings. And so even years later, an opportunity arose. My brother has finally shared something personal. And that's ammunition. I'm going to go tell those people the real deal about their pastor. So here she is burdened about this. And I say all that just to say, I'm admitting to you, when that happens to you, you feel so betrayed that you never want to open up again. And with that person, I never did. I still count them as a friend, but I've never shared anything personal again because once trust is broken, it's so hard to restore. The world is in desperate need of some men and women who are the kind of friends who live with integrity that you can tell me anything and know it will go no further. It's not, oh, I'm only going to tell one person, no. A person of integrity refuses to gossip. They refuse to spread it. That's part of the beauty of a small group. Done right. It's the safe group to do that with. Fourth, pursuing integrity means you do your best at work. This is another one that stings. Again, it may seem like it's unimportant. It matters to God. It matters in His Word. Do you do your best at work? couple of tests to that. Do you give the same level of effort on the days that the boss is not going to be around or is going to be out of town that you give when the boss is around? Do you give yourself permission to um, surf Facebook and to you know Snapchat and shop online while you're at work because nobody can see what you're doing? Do you give yourself permission to take long breaks and long lunches that aren't Actually authorized because doing your best at work is a part of living with vocational integrity. Proverbs 18.9 says this. Slack habits and sloppy work are as bad as vandalism. The Living Bible version of that says a lazy employee is as destructive as a saboteur. Yikes. Vandals and saboteurs if we aren't giving our best at work. Now, you may hate your job, but it doesn't give us a pass to be slack on our job. Uh, Paul said in Colossians 3.23, In all the work that you're doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for people. And that's the the difference maker. No matter how you feel about your job, if you'll just say, You know what? I I may have a lousy boss. But ultimately, I'm not doing the work for him. I'm doing it to honor the Lord. Imagine how different things would be if all believers took an attitude, Because I'm a Christian, it's my responsibility to give 110% all the time. To the point that employers just said, You know what? I may not publicize this, but I try to only hire Christian people because they just outwork everybody else. Shouldn't that be the norm? It's a major part of integrity. Fifth and final piece is this. Integrity means just being real with others. It demands that we are our true selves with everyone. The word integrity, the the Hebrew word for integrity, meant without wax. You may have heard this before, but it sums it up as well as anything. In ancient days, when uh, most of what they had was made of pottery, you know the whole deal of when you make pottery, it has to go through the firing process, it has to be heated and cooled, and the most frequent problem with that is, in the heating and cooling, is that something would crack very often. And the dishonest people who who made the pots and had to do all that whole deal, if a pot cracked, they hated to just scrap it and start over. And so the dishonest ones would melt wax and pour it in the cracks and then shave it off real smooth and then paint over it. And they would sell it as if it were without blemish. And the suckers who bought it, thinking there's no cracks, would take it home and it would look beautiful until the first time that they put it over a fire. And as soon as they did that, the wax would melt out and the pot would be destroyed. Integrity does not mean without cracks. It means without wax. Integrity means... You don't boast about your sin, you don't glory in your sin, but you don't try and gloss over and pretend like you don't have any issues. You're just real and you're consistent. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians four two: We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. And we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open. The whole truth on display. Living life as an open book. I'll share this as a final example. It may seem like an awkward one for a pastor to be sharing on Sunday morning, but I'm going to share it anyway. Last Sunday, after church, uh, we got kind of a last-minute text invitation to a retirement party uh, for Jackie's brother, who's retiring after working for the county for many, many years. Uh, So we made plans and and went over and joined them. And uh, I realize probably none of you other than my row over here uh, know Duane. Jackie's brother, but I love him dearly. He, he is just a one-of-a-kind, and I, the thing I appreciate most about him is he never changes who he is. He just is who he is all the time. And so it's always sort of interesting when you have something like that where people who represent sort of the different parts of your life all come into the same room at the same time. So, like, first of all, I'm curious who's going to be at his party, and we get there, and so it's family and his Sunday school class, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Pretty much everybody that's not family, apparently, is his Sunday school class. Neat people. And so then, the I'm just being honest, and I hope I won't get in trouble for sharing this. I didn't ask permission. I'm just going to go out there anyway. But I, he, he is a wonderful guy, but one of the things that I know about Dwayne is we're in a Mexican restaurant. And if he's going to be himself, he likes a margarita. And so I'm thinking, well, that's going to be interesting to watch with with family and and Sunday school class gathered around. Will he order himself a margarita on the side? Not only does he order a margarita, he gets the fish bowls version of it, and uh, and and enjoys. It doesn't get drunk or anything, but he just enjoys his drink with his meal. And in the course of of the evening, he wears the big Mexican sombrero, and he just when he feels. Led, he gets up and shows us that he knows how to moonwalk. So he is in the Mexican restaurant. And you just have to know Dwayne. He is not built for the moonwalk. And yet he is moonwalking through the Mexican restaurant. And as I'm watching all this, I am just having such a great time. Because I am reminded of what it is that is so winsome about my brother-in-law. He is the same person wherever he goes. He is not trying to impress anybody. There's no pretense about him. He is just who he is love him, hate him, be his friend, ignore him. He just, He's just okay with that. He's okay in his own skin. And I just think, in its own wonderful, refreshing way, it's a picture of this part of integrity. Just be real about who you are. Now, here we are at the conclusion of the whole thing. And if you look back at everything that we talked about, five specific ways to live with integrity you may be saying, well, okay, if the test is these five things, fail, 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 is is how I I check up. If that's how you feel, and you're like, oh, where do I even begin? Let me offer a good beginning point for any of us. St. Augustine said this, The beginning of good deeds is the confession of bad deeds. The beginning of good works is the confession of bad works. Maybe you look at this and go, wow, I don't think I had as much integrity as I sort of thought I had. Well, if that's where you are, just being honest with God about that and saying, God, I'm sorry for all the failures in the past, but I'm telling you, I want my heart to be pointed in the right direction. I want to live with integrity. I want to speak the truth. I want to be somebody that people can trust. I want to be careful with my tongue. I want to give my best at work. I want to be real. I want to be consistent. I want to be a whole person, consistent wherever I am. God will bless the socks off of that. The beginning of good works is the confession of bad works. Confessing it, turning to God, and connecting your your life with His Word and His people. Would you join me as we just go to the Lord together in prayer right now? Jesus, we confess that there are way too many times in our lives when our actions and our hearts did not reflect your holiness and your heart. And we just begin with that. We begin with the confession of our past. there have been way too many times where our words were not truth. Or we took part in gossip. Or we've been slack. Or we've been inconsistent. where we haven't handled money the way that we should. And we just refuse to make excuses for that today. We call it what it is. We call it sin. And we give thanks to you, God, that Jesus, through His blood has paid the price for our sin. And we ask that you cover that and that you give us a fresh start. Why don't you ask the Lord now to do a fresh work in your heart? Giving you a heart that wants more than anything to please Him. To live with integrity. To not be this person who who lives six different ways with six different groups of people but who can be real and the same all the time. God, we ask you for the power and the desire to live as a different kind of people, men and women of integrity. We long to live in fellowship with you. Would you do a fresh work among us, we pray with expectant and grateful hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.